And you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. I'd invite you to read this with me. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received. Are you reading with me? I didn't sound like it. Let's try that again. It was not through the law that Abraham and to life, our justification. This is the Word of God. One of the uh, very clear things in the passage is that faith is absolutely essential. Faith comes up in different ways in this passage, but uh, I think we can very quickly, right from the outset, say that for Paul, faith is absolutely essential. It's critical. It's fundamental. It's necessary. However you want to describe it, faith matters. And there's two ways in this passage that I think we see this from the Apostle Paul. Two ways that we see how important faith is. First, Paul says that faith is required for everyone, not just for Abraham or those in Abraham's direct lineage. Paul uses Abraham as as an example, but he makes it clear that faith is necessary, is required for all of us. Look at verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Faith is for everyone. Faith is required for everyone. Faith is needed for everyone. There's not some people who need faith and other people who don't. Faith is a necessity for everyone. The other way that Paul shows us that faith is critical, is essential, 
In addition to showing that it's a requirement for everyone, he also shows what results from our faith. And the phrase he uses in this passage is the, is the righteousness of God. Righteousness before God. Being made right in God's sight. Verses 22 and 25. This is why it was credited to him, Abraham, as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. For he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Faith is critical. Faith is central. Faith is necessary because it's required for everyone. But also because this faith that Paul has in mind results in our being made righteous before God. And so we see at the end of this passage that it's Jesus' death and resurrection that result in our rescue from sin and our justification, our being made right before God. We are credited as righteous. There's a kind of another way that, that, that Paul shows how this shows the result of this faith. He talks about God's promises in this passage. The promises that God makes to Abraham and the promises that God makes to, to us. For Abraham, the promise was that he would become heir of the world. That's Paul's language. That he, he and his family would become the vehicle through which God would bless the world, through which God would advance God's mission, God's purpose, God's redemption in the world. This was the promise given to Abraham. For us, the promise is a restored relationship with God, being made right before God, not just for our own benefit, not just for our own salvation, but for a life of participating with God. In what God is doing in the world. The promise, the hope, the expectation of faith. Faith is absolutely essential. There's no way to get around this. There's no way to downplay this. There's no way to talk about faith being optional. It's central. So do you have faith? That's a loaded question, isn't it? Do you have faith? Some of us would say, well, I think I have some, or sometimes I have some, or I have this much faith. On a good day, I have some faith. Do you have faith? We've been examining ourselves during Lent. We've been asking the Holy Spirit to reveal the state of our hearts to ourselves so that we can turn from anything that is distracting us from God. And some of us have been chagrined at what we have found. Some of us, as we encounter ourselves, as we see what's actually true for us, what's actually in us, what's actually attached itself to us, when we see what our priorities actually are, it's discouraging. Anybody besides me experiencing a little bit of that? I mean, every, you know, every, we're, we're, we're fasting together during Lent from, from dinner on Thursday through dinner on Friday, and We've done it twice now, and every Friday, it's like I just am confronted with more of myself. I'm not a nice person, (laughs) especially when I'm hungry. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not good. Do we have faith? We expect that if we had faith, our lives would look differently. And again, many of us are confronting during this Lenten season this question of our faith. So I I would say that there's a weightiness to this question, do you have faith? Maybe a heaviness to it. Paul is deadly serious about this, about the need for faith. But before we feel completely weighed down, we should at least ask, what is faith? 
What is Paul talking about when he talks about faith? The essential nature of it, the requirement for all of us to have this faith. What does he have in mind? Paul, in this passage, is quoting from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, specifically Genesis chapter 17. If you have your Bible, you can turn there now. He's quoting from a passage. We'll look at at more than just one verse he is pulling from Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, and then again, verses 15 and 16. So to, or, to answer the question, what is faith, we would do well to look at the scriptures that Paul is looking at. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Then jump ahead to verses 15 and 16. As he's speaking to Abraham's wife, God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. What can we say about faith from this passage in Genesis. I think there's two things. First, we can say that the faith that Paul has in mind is a faith that God initiates. Say initiates. But with some conviction. Initiates. God initiates this sort of faith. Look in this passage. God does absolutely everything. Verse 1, it is God who appears to Abraham. In verse 2, God makes the covenant. Again, in verse 2, God increases Abraham's family. In verse 4, God makes Abraham and Sarah the patriarch and matriarch of many nations. In verse 5, God changes Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah, thereby giving them new identity as his children, as his people. In verse 6, God will make kings come from Abraham and Sarah's lineage. In verse 7, God will uphold this covenant not just with Abraham, but also with his descendants forever God does everything in this passage God initiates the sort of faith that Paul has in mind is a faith that can be initiated by God and it's not just that God initiates it's that Abraham and Sarah are incapable of doing anything that is needed to establish this covenant relationship say incapable God initiates Abraham and Sarah are incapable Now, you see how the passage starts in verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old. Would you agree that's old? That's old in in Old Testament times, too. Just it would be old for us today. The author of Genesis is starting off this passage by making very clear Abraham and Sarai's age. Now, Paul, in the passage from Romans, is a little less uh, sensitive He's a little less diplomatic about how he talks about this. In verse 9, about Abram, he says, He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. 
That's blunt. Would you agree? Paul's the guy who, like, if you invite him to a dinner party, you, 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 you know, you're nervous the whole time he's there. Because if it's in his head, is he going to say it? Abraham was as good as that. Sarah's womb was dead. This is not like, you know, spiritual language somehow that we should read in. No, he's just being blunt. They had nothing to offer. They were incapable of doing anything specifically as it related to having a son. God said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a son, and this is going to be how my covenant with you is established. Who does he go to? The two people least likely to have a son. They're incapable of doing really anything to contribute. Are you aware of your inadequacy before God? Are you aware that in, in the same way that Abraham and Sarah were as dead people before God, that we as well? In verse 13, Paul says, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. It's not through anything that, that Abraham and Sarah did. Paul is preaching to Jewish Christians, some who would have a memory of the Jewish law, a Jewish law that was meant to signify their covenant relationship with God, but for whom many became the means, the way that they tried to hold together their covenant relationship with God. If we can just keep God's law perfectly, think of the Pharisees here, then God will accept us, God will love us, God will advance God's purposes through us. If we just keep this law, if we just do these things. And Paul says it was nothing that Abraham and Sarah did. You and I have a deeply ingrained need to prove ourselves. Yes? Thank you, Daniel, for being honest. We have a deeply ingrained need to show ourselves worthy, to show that we can contribute, to show that we have something to offer. Paul wants to make it clear that Abraham and Sarah had nothing to offer. Now here's the thing. God's initiation and our inadequacy does not mean that we are passive when it comes to matters of faith. So if the first thing that we're going to say about the sort of faith that, 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 that Paul has in mind is that God initiates, the second thing we need to say is that we respond. Say respond. God initiates this faith and we respond. Now I left a window into the weird kind of dysfunctional pastor world that I live in. My dad is an associate pastor at a church in, in New Jersey. And he was talking with another pastor out there, a senior pastor, about tithing. Not that all pastors always talk about tithing, just so you know. But they were having this conversation about tithing. And and my dad was sharing his own conviction that that tithing is not a legal requirement for Christians. I, I share his conviction on this. That we give, that we tithe, that we give of our offerings, not because we are compelled to, to earn God's favor, but because we are responding to a generous God. And so tithing can be a very helpful guideline, a tool to kind of orient us towards this sort of generosity. But my dad was saying, again, I agree, that this is not some sort of Christian legal requirement. That God is more interested in transforming our hearts out of which we then become generous people. 
And this pastor, and I really appreciate his honesty, he said, you know, I agree with you theologically, but you all get nervous if anybody ever says that. But practically, he said, I could never preach that. He said, if I preached that, nobody would give. And we have things that we need to do, programs we need to run. I sympathize with this pastor. I get it. I'm not judging him at all. But when we begin talking about faith as something that we respond to, you know, we can get a little nervous about this. We feel more comfortable if someone would just tell us what to do to earn God's love, God's favor, to prove that we have faith. This is not what Paul is interested in this passage. God initiates and we respond. So God initiates with Abraham, right? God shows up to Abraham. We don't know exactly how this works, but God shows up to Abraham and God initiates. He says, I'm going to do all this. I'm going to accomplish this covenant. I'm going to use you, Abraham. I'm going to bless you. And and what does Abraham do? Does he sit back and go, great, have at it. I'm going to go ahead and keep living as I've been living. I'm going to keep doing the thing that I've always done. God, you you said you're going to take care of it. You're in charge, so do it. Is that what he does? No. But neither, neither does Abraham kind of hop up and go, okay, sweet, God, so that's your half, so what's my half? All right, God, so that's what you're going to do. That's your 50% of this agreement, so what's my 50%? He doesn't do that either. Why? Because in the presence of a whole God, Abraham becomes very aware of his own inadequacy, of his own insufficiency, of his own sinfulness, of his own weakness, of his own frailty. So neither does he sit back and say, great, I'm going to just keep doing my thing. And neither does he say, okay, give me my half. Let me do what I can do. Instead, he's overwhelmed in the presence of God. And do you see what the text says? What's his response? He falls on his face. That's the only thing Abraham does in our passage. That's it. He doesn't have like a real smart conversation with God. He doesn't pull out his list of things that he's done. He doesn't say, hey, strategically, God, how's this exactly going to work? Because, you know, we haven't been able to have any kids, and I got this stepchild. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He falls on his face. In verse 3, God initiates. In the presence of God, Abraham is confronted with his inabilities, his weakness, his frailty, his sin. So what does he do? He responds, and he responds appropriately in the presence of God. He doesn't sit back. He doesn't try to prove his worth. He falls on his face. Now, I stop the sermon right there. And we could be done for the day. And I could just say, so are we, are we falling on our faces before this God? Is this response to this God? to a holy God who initiates this relationship with us. Is this our response? And that would be enough. Because most of us know the answer most of the time. Most of us, most of the time, our instinct is not to fall on our face. It's to sit back and continue living as we've been living before or it's to try to offer something. It's to try to do something. It's to try to like, have equal partnership somehow with God because that will make us feel really good about ourselves. That's how we respond most of the time. I'm not going to end the sermon there. I want to try to be real specific with us. Worship team, go ahead and come back on up. How can we respond? Abraham falls on his face. 
I want to suggest just one very specific way that you and I can respond in faith to the God who initiates with our inadequate selves. And it's simply this. We listen. We listen. Last week, we looked at Mark chapter 1, and it was the passage where Jesus is baptized by his cousin John. He comes out of the, the water, and you remember the Spirit of God descends on him, and then a voice from heaven proclaims, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Skip ahead a few chapters to chapter 9 in the book of Mark, which is almost the, the center of the book, and we see another scene. In this scene, Jesus takes three of his closest disciples up a mountain, and he is, the text says, transfigured. His clothes shine brightly so you can hardly even look at them, and he's joined by these heroes of the Old Testament faith. And then we hear something very, very familiar in verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to Him. The language sounds very similar. The first time, though, Father was speaking directly to the Son. You are my Son. Now, though, the Father is speaking to the disciples. This is my Son. And so where in the first passage, the Father says, I love you. I'm pleased with you. In this second passage, the Father says, that's my son. I love him. What does he say? What does he say? Listen to him. Listen to him. That's all. I mean, of all of... <laughs> like, if you were there, right? Like, and you know that God the Father is going to speak to you, is going to say things to you, what would you want him to say? Something specific, maybe, about how to live your life. A problem that you're facing. Something to kind of help you get over, you know. What does the Father say? Listen to my Son. That's it. That's it. That's all the disciples get. Listen. I, I want to say that this is what Abraham does. Abraham encounters a God who is speaking, and he shuts up. He falls down, and he listens. think very specifically one of the ways that we can step into this life of faith that we have been called to is to simply begin listening to our God. When we listen, we are acknowledging the possibility that God exists. See, some of us here this morning, we're not sure if God exists or not. Or maybe, we, maybe there's a God, but this whole Jesus thing? Some of you here a couple of weeks ago when my friend got up and shared and said, I'm glad to be a part of this church, but I don't know about Jesus. You remember that? He said, I, I, I'm interested in what this church is about. There's some things I can believe, but I don't know about Jesus. You know, do you remember what he said? But, but I'm open, he said. So for this person, it's faith. He's listening. The possibility of a God who is speaking. When we listen, we acknowledge the possibility of a God who exists. And for some of you this morning, I want to invite you to that, to that. Ask God to speak. 
listen to the possibility of a God who exists, who's revealing God's self to you, who wants to know you, who wants to be known by you. That's faith for you, listening. Listening uh, not only acknowledges the possibility of a God, listening acknowledges that it is God who initiates with us. And listening acknowledges our own inadequacy. When our posture of listening for God, we're acknowledging that it is God who reveals God's self to us. It is God who comes to Abraham. It is God who speaks to the disciples on that mountain. It is God who reveals God's self to us through Jesus. If you have seen me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. It is always God who initiates with us. When we listen, we're acknowledging that God is initiating with us. That God wants to be known by us. That God wants to speak to us. That God has things that God wants us to hear. Do you hear me? When we listen, we're acknowledging our own inadequacy to somehow search out and put together and piece together God, figure that out somehow. This is something that God does for us, God revealing God's self to us. And then listening acknowledges a relationship. I think too many of us have this idea of faith that's very transactional. Faith somehow is like, I, I, I need to believe these certain things then I, God will do this thing for me or I will get this thing from God. I do this and then God will do this. I believe these right things. I say this right prayer and then God will do this. It's this transaction. It's not what we see in the scriptures though. Faith is relational. This is a personal God who comes to us. This is a God who takes on flesh so that he can be known and seen This is a God who takes on flesh so that he can take on our flesh and put to death every sin, every rebellion, every injustice and put it to death. This is a God who desires not for you just to believe the right things, a God who desires to be in relationship with you. If if you think for a moment about the person who listens the best in your life, it's probably one of your closest friends. That person who just, who just knows when to shut up with you, knows to not try to solve your problems, knows to not kind of patch it over and make it nice, not to say just the right Christian-y sort of thing. A friend who just listens. It's probably one of the closest friends in your life. Listening is relational. Listening acknowledges there, that there is a God who wants to be in a dynamic, living relationship with And when we're in a relationship, we're changed by that relationship. I mean, talk to any, any person who's been really close friends with somebody for many, many, many years, and they'll tell you how that person has affected them, right? How they've been changed by that person. How they used to, to, to hate that kind of movie that that likes. But now, you know, if they're honest, they actually like to go see chick flicks. They have, you know, really honest about people like me, but you understand what I'm saying. We're changed by the relationships that we're in. If it's a real relationship, if it's a real friendship, we're changed by it. 
Abraham, uh, we didn't get to this part of the passage. Hi, Elliot. <laughs> Where's your mommy? <laughs> it's okay. Abraham, when we, um, at the very end of our passage, uh, Abraham is still on his face before God, and he laughs. I, I guess he just figures, like, I'm on my face, so God can't hear me. <laughs> He laughs. He laughs because it's just too good to be true what God has said. The promises God has given. I'm going to have a son. No, 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 no. You're going to do this in me through my family? No, no, no. So he laughs. Do you know what Abraham names his son when he finally comes? The son God promises him? Laughter. He names him laughter. He's acknowledging that God has God's promises. That God did what God said God was going to do. He's experiencing the joy, the happiness, the contentment that he's experiencing because God has been faithful. Abraham is changed through his relationship with God. He moves from doubting, from cynical to laughing on his face before God to naming his child laughter because God has been good to me. This is what happens to This is what happens in a life of faith where we're listening to God and responding to God. We're changed. Some of us are frustrated by the lack of change in our lives. Are we listening to God? Is there space in your life to listen to God? To hear the voice of God? Through the scriptures when you open them up, when you gather around in your small group to study the Bible, together? Is there space in your life to hear from God? When you gather regularly to worship with the people of God, to, to say true things to one another, to sing true things in the presence of God, to open up the, the Bible together, is there space in your life to listen to God? This is the question we're asking of ourselves during Lent. We're aware that there are things in our lives that don't need to be there, that are getting in the way, that are hindering us from hearing the voice of God and living a life of faith. So what needs to go, church? What needs to go? What needs to be set aside? What needs to be repented of so that you can experience this life of faith that God promises us? When I consider the people who I've known who would I, I would consider to have great faith. People in my life who I look at and I say, that, I want to be like that person. I want to be like them when I grow up, when I'm 60, 70, 80 years old. That's who I want to be. When I look at those people, I observe their lives of faith. I'm pretty sure that they're no different than me. I don't think that God somehow given them extra faith somehow. I don't think God has somehow made them more adequate than the rest of us. I think they're just like us. I think they just listen better. I think they just listen more. I think they've just been more captivated and ravished by this God who would actually initiate with us, who would let nothing come between us and him. They've been more captivated by that, so they listen more. And in listening to this God, they respond to this God. And responding to this God, they're changed by this God. Is there space to listen? Are there rhythms and practices in your life that help you?
to listen? Are there people in your life who can be honest with you and say, you are too busy. You are too distracted. You are too off course. You can't listen well if you continue to live this way. This is the faith that God requires of us. It's an invitation. It's a gift. It will change us. And so, God, I ask that you give us this gift today, that you invite us again to this life of faith today, that you remind us again that you are a God who speaks, that you speak through your scriptures, that you speak through your, your people, that you speak through your Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So speak to us again today and find us attentive to you. Find us willing to hear you, willing to listen to you, willing to fall on our faces before you. Find us so aware as we're in the presence of a holy God, so aware of our inadequacy that we would never be tempted to just sit back or to somehow try to take over. Find us listening on our faces before you. Responding. beautiful, beautiful invitation of a life of faith. A life of faith where, yes, we know a restored relationship with you, but a life of faith that calls us to walk beside you as you are at work in this world. That calls us to walk beside you, follow you closely, and participate with you. So my brothers and sisters, today I ask that you again give us this gift, give us this word, give us this invitation. Give us the courage to respond to you today. For those of us who even are aware of the things that we must repent from, the things that we must turn away from, give us the courage to do it today, to turn away today, to set it aside today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you again for worshiping with us today. Um, Your assignments are to run back to the back table and uh, register for the racial righteousness retreat coming up in two weekends. Uh, If you know how to help with our stage, if you could help these guys break down so that we can all eat together. Again, if you're a guest, I hope you'll stick around, have uh, have lunch with us after the service. Um, Here again, the words of the of the father as he speaks to his son, as he speaks to us. This is my son. This is my son. This is my son whom I love. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. So I invite you to listen this week. I invite you to listen this week. I invite you to ask God to speak to you this week. And then to respond to this God who reveals God's self to us step into this life of faith together. And now, Lord, send us out. Walk before us, walk beside us, come behind us. We rely on you. We rely on your presence this week. We claim everything that you have given us, every spiritual gift, every promise in heaven, everything that you have accomplished on our behalf. 
Help us to be a people of faith this week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. See you at lunch.